I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. As we consider the various challenges any nation faces, teaching our children, preparing them with the tools required to be successful, active players in a continually evolving society is likely one of the most important and hardest. The challenge is particularly great for children who experience various forms of trauma, including poverty. What's required from new insights to teacher training to school design and beyond to help them succeed? It turns out science has something to say about this, something Dr. Pamela Cantor calls the science of adversity. Dr. Cantor is president and CEO of Turnaround for Children. She practiced child psychiatry for nearly two decades, specializing in trauma and founded Turnaround after co-authoring a study on the impact of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on New York City school children. Dr. Cantor recognized that the scientific research on stress and the developing brain that she had learned in medical school should be translated into practices to help children and schools challenged by the effects of unrelenting adversity. As background, Dr. Cantor is a visiting scholar in education at Harvard University, a member of the Council of Distinguished Scientists for the National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development, and a leader of the Science of Learning and Development Initiative. And Ashoka Fellow, Dr. Cantor was awarded the 2014 Purpose Prize for Intergenerational Impact. Dr. Cantor started Turnaround to help schools understand the impact of adversity on learning and to put children on a healthier developmental trajectory so they can live the lives they choose. Specifically, Turnaround for Children translates neuroscientific research into tools and strategies for schools serving students impacted by adversity in order to accelerate healthy development and academic achievement. How does it work? That's what we discussed. Pam, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get right into it. What is Turnaround for Children? And at a high level, what's the connection between science and early learning? Because a lot of us come to early learning and may think, um, you know, it's a, it's about uh, um, access, it's about uh, cost or money or resources, um, but you, you really dive into the connection between science and early learning. So take me through that and, and Turnaround for Children broadly, please. Sure. Turnaround was founded by me uh, about 16 years ago, and it was founded based on the knowledge of development and the effects of adversity on children's development. I had been a practicing child psychiatrist and worked for many years with children who had known trauma. And when I first uh, became aware of uh, our public schools, particularly public schools in high poverty communities, I saw a connection between the children that I had worked with in my practice and the children in our schools, many of whom had been exposed to adversities like the adversity of poverty. So for me, there was a connection between the ways in which adversity and trauma can derail development and affect learning. And I saw this firsthand as a set of challenges that are presented to teachers and principals every day in our public schools. Were you, were you ever a teacher? I mean, you, you saw this because you were 
a doctor, I assume, and you were trained in recognizing patterns. You talk a lot about recognizing patterns. Did, was teaching ever part of your background, or you saw this pattern between trauma and uh, learning? I was never a teacher. When I was in practice as a doctor, independent of the things that had happened to children, they would show up in my office with a pattern of challenges, like being distractible, being impulsive, having trouble concentrating, or having trouble forming relationships with peers. And then I go to high-poverty public schools, and I see a pattern of challenges in those schools. I see lots of children unready for learning. I see a negative culture, chronic underperformance, and I see teachers who are complaining that many of the challenges they're facing are things that were never part of their training. And they want tools and practices and supports to help them manage these challenges. What got you into the school in the first place? Was it because you were working with the children? Were you, did you have a relationship with the local schools? Because it's, it's that, as an outsider looking at your career and at the impact that, that Turnaround for Children makes, it's that connection. I mean, you were seeing children, I assume, in private practice, I think. You, you Please correct me if I have that wrong, if it was a different type of practice. Um, and you made that connection between what was going on in their lives and what was going on in the schools. Um, what, what, what brought you into the school in the first place? The connection were the events surrounding 9-11. Mm. I was known in the city for my work on trauma and was invited by the New York City DOE to participate and guide a study answering the question, what was the effect of 9-11 on New York City's public school children? We did it in collaboration with the Mailman School of Public Health, and the data coming out of that study was really stunning for the fact that the children that were most deeply affected were from 9-11 were actually not in the ground zero schools. They were in schools in the communities of deepest poverty. So when I went to visit those schools with the background that I had in trauma, I saw the challenges in a different way than many educators did. I saw lots of children having many of the same challenges as I had seen in my office, but it wasn't spoken about as a pattern of challenges. I think that that when Turnaround was founded, it was founded on the core insight that children exposed to adversities of different kinds are going to have effects on their development and learning, effects that can be surmounted if we recognize them for sure, just as had happened in my office with the kids that I worked with, but it needed to be recognized. And that's what we did uh, in founding Turnaround. And then significantly in talking with the teachers, they're among their concerns, I guess, to you or maybe to, you know, to others and, and you heard about it. But, but one of the things you realized was they did not feel that they were trained. It, was, it wasn't part of their training to manage through children dealing with adverse events, children dealing with trauma and connecting that to, to learning. Is that right? Am I, in, am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, and yeah. I think that it is important in a kind of overarching way to understand that our 20th century education system 
was actually not built with the knowledge of the developing brain. Mm. So people who are trained as teachers typically don't get a lot of coursework on development, on the neuroscience of learning. This body of knowledge is relatively new and has not been a shaper of, of education at the higher ed level. Of course, it needs to be, but historically it hasn't been. So talk to me about that, if you would, please. Um, what is the science of adversity? When we speak about the science of adversity, we're actually talking about the role of context in children's lives. And what I mean by context is that children are affected dramatically by the environments and experiences and relationships in their lives. Now, that sounds like a no-brainer. It sounds like common sense. But let me go one level deeper and explain what I mean by this. An example of negative context is stress. So when children experience high levels of stress, especially when that stress is not buffered by an adult that enables a child to feel safe, a system in the body gets triggered called the HPA system the hypothalamic pituitary axis. That system gets triggered, cortisol gets released, it gets released into the brain and body, and it has very dramatic effects on children, which, if unbuffered, can actually significantly affect the learning centers of the brain and also children's health. This is why we see increased levels of challenges to learning, and challenges to health in high-poverty communities and high-poverty schools. By the same token, an example of positive context is the human relationship, and it too has a biologic correlate in the hormone oxytocin. So when children are in environments in which they feel physically and emotionally safe and cared for, you can trigger the release of oxytocin, and you can mitigate the effects of cortisol. So when we think about resilience, what we're really talking about is the impact of buffering, the impact of caring, and the impact of a neurobiologic hormone that can oppose the effects of cortisol. So the science of adversity is the science of stress. It's the impact of stress on development and learning. How do teachers, and I imagine parents as well, I mean, all of us know that feeling we, you know, what's the, this, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, fight the or saying, flight. yeah, fight or flight. And the, the one I'm thinking of as well is, you know, you're only as happy as your uh, least happy child. And so the, the, yeah. the, the yeah. stress for any parent in seeing one's own child and a teacher seeing a child struggle to then hear the, the the biology, the science, I, I guess I don't know if that's the bio, the, the combination of the biology and the chemistry behind it, um, must be um, really powerful for teachers and for parents. How, how do they react when, when it gets explained to them and then maybe they see a path towards, beyond recovery, but a, a path towards normalcy and maybe a path towards excellence? How, how do they... How do they feel when that they, they kind of that gets revealed to them? Actually, this is one of the most interesting things uh, that we've seen at Turnaround. When teachers learn about the role of stress 
and the kinds of things that stress causes in children's lives. There's a feeling of validation. This explains something that I'm seeing in my classroom. This explains why Johnny is having trouble. Mm. And it, it makes them understand what the triggers are for the behavior that they're seeing. And by understanding the triggers, it points the way for teachers to actually, in a very knowing way, be helpful to a child. But the other side of this is, is even more important because one of the things that teachers get very excited about is the power that they have to influence the trajectory of a child's life. So if we know that tissue in the brain is literally the most susceptible to change from experience of any tissue in the human body, what this means is that a negative context can be turned into a positive developmental experience if we know what to do. So, so there is tremendous optimism in developmental science, but there is a reality to understanding what stress does to children. So what's exciting for teachers is to be able to see this entire arc, the first part of which explains what's going on in the classroom in a way that they can understand, and then to understand the power they have to bring about a different result with a child. And when they practice those tools and practice those practices and see the positive effects, it's reinforcing for the teacher and, of course, it's very positive for the child. I would imagine. It, it must – I don't know if it removes the myth. I think it does remove – it must remove the myth of the lost child, of, gosh, I've got 20, you know, terrific kids, but, but Johnny is lost. And, you know, I just I, – I'm not going to be able to recover Johnny because, that you know, he's just a, a lost child. And and you know and the teacher must struggle with that and deal with it and mitigate. But this kind of removes – remove might be too strong, but it certainly addresses the myth of the lost child, I would think. It, there are many myths that are destroyed by the things that I'm talking to you about now. Mm. An example of another myth yeah. is the notion of fixed traits. What is that? Okay, you are well, you are smart, you are intelligent and you are not. Mm-hmm. Okay, many many people think that genes are the determinants of traits like intelligence. But in fact, what we know is that genes are chemical followers. That phrase, genes are chemical followers, that the expression of our genetic makeup is a function of the experiences and relationships in our lives. If, if I were to tell you that you have 25,000 genes in your genome and less than 10% of those genes are going to be expressed in your lifetime, what do we think determines which 10% get expressed? What gets expressed is driven by the relationships and experiences in our lives. And if we take that fact and say, what does this mean for the preparation of a teacher? What does this mean for parenting? What does this mean for the design of a classroom or the design of a school? The science is optimistic for what that means. 
because of the malleability of the brain. And, and so by those experiences, certain genes can, I assume, positive, on the basis of positive experiences, positive, I'm assuming, you please correct me on the science, obviously, I'm assuming positive genes can be brought out. The 10% that get expressed can be more strongly populated by, quote, positive genes based on, they, they could be brought out through positive experiences. Am I kind of interpreting that correctly? I would say that, that the latent talent and potential mm. that exist in all of us will be brought out in environments designed to do that. So one of the questions, uh, Chris, that I often get asked was um, the question of, well, does that mean anybody can be a Mozart? <laughs> and the answer is no. Everybody can't be a Mozart. And, and that is a gift and, and a genetic gift. But what I would tell you is that if we have schools designed to unleash potential, we will find many more Mozarts. So let me ask you about that. You've used the phrase twice now in a row, and it's, a, it's an important point, one of your core points, the design. What, yeah. is that, what does that mean, the design of school, design of education? D describe what that means for me. By design, what I mean are classrooms that are designed to enable very rich relationships between adults and students and students with each other. I mean classrooms that have a rigorous and challenging curriculum that can be delivered in highly personalized ways so that, that diverse learners can be in a classroom and progress and that children can progress at their own pace because that is what development says, that children develop at different rates. And our classrooms, if not designed for that fact, okay, will be designed toward an average as opposed to designed for an individual. We know that we want classrooms to be culturally competent. We want them to be physically and emotionally safe. And, and we want um, classrooms in which children can discover their own voice and their own agency. So you can imagine that that traditional picture of a classroom of kids sitting in rows, silent, yeah. while a teacher talks, is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about classrooms designed for productive learning, for collaborative learning and problem solving, and where teachers play a role as mentor and guide, and where we use one of the things that we didn't have 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, which is the access to digital technologies, which enable the kind of personalization of content that, we, that our classrooms really need to have in, in this 21st century. Can this approach impact public schools? You don't need me to tell you there are some really significant public policy questions, um, you know, under, beyond underway, and a lot of questions about uh, private, uh, about charter, about the different approaches to education, and some would say um, there are attempts at a dismantling might be too strong of a word, but certainly, um, you know, attacks on the public school system. Can, can what you're talking about impact 
a public school situation? How hard is that? People think about bureaucracy around public schools. Um, How do you work in that area? One of the things when you just asked me the question about design that I hope came through is that I listed a number of things that need to be integrated to produce a 21st century classroom. It isn't just one thing. And one of the things that I think has really hindered education progress, unlike, frankly, in my former field, science and medicine, in science and medicine, you never think that you can only do one thing and make a child well. So analogously, in education, we can't just do one thing and think that we are going to give a rich education to all of the children who absolutely deserve it. So there have been experiments, and the charter sector, I think, was a really, really important experiment where the positives are that environments were created and designed to demonstrate that the myth that poverty or race or any of these ecological factors should stand in the way of children being able to have an excellent education and demonstrate academic competencies. The charter sector also, I think, has to examine another side of the argument, and that is that many kids who come out of these very heavily scaffolded environments often don't have as much success when they move out of those environments, hmm. meaning the skills and competence that the competencies that they've acquired aren't transferable to other environments. So if I'm a charter operator, that's one of the problems that needs to be solved, and it's an important question about how do we scaffold to the point where children internalize competencies. But you asked a different question, which is, is this harder to do in our regular public education system? And the answer is, it is. Or can it be done in the public education system? It is much more difficult in the regular public education system because education policy has a political aspect to it. There are um, rigid structures in place in the vertical alignment of those systems that determine everything from what a teacher is taught, what they are held accountable for. That freedom that I was talking about to design a classroom and design a school is much less present in the public education system. Having said that, there are states and districts, an example would be Rhode Island, that is taking on this idea of a new design for 21st century schools. Hmm. Utah has done this as well. And there are many districts across the country that are looking for how to use science, meaning developmental science and learning science, and develop an approach to whole child personalization of learning, meaning to develop the whole person. But it is going to require something that is, as they say, top down and bottom up. You need a force on the ground that is willing to do this kind of design work and and build schools and classrooms based on the criteria that I talked about before. But you have to have a supportive structure from above 
either at the district level or at the state level to do this in the public system. And you were right to allude to supportive policies. That That's a very important aspect of this, too. Well, you forgive me, but I feel like I'm talking with a force on the ground right here. I, I guess there <laughs> there surely must be others, but I, I, I think I can find one if, if we want to start there. <laughs> Thank uh, you for saying that. Uh, you mentioned this in terms of the scaffolding, in terms of the uh, outcomes uh, for charter kids, but but more generally, connecting the, the the science, the design, and what I assume is the ultimate purpose of education and growing children, which is to enable fully functioning as excellent as one can be, reaching one's human potential, adults. How do you translate your work for a professional audience? Um, can your findings be applied to the workplace? One of the things that was seminal to Turnaround's history was the creation of a paper describing a framework called the Building Blocks for Learning. A team of us at Turnaround asked the question, is there a pathway by which any child, independent of their start in life, could become a productive and engaged learner. And we read a really big scientific literature uh, across diverse fields, not actually intending to design a framework, but a framework fell out of the literature. Hmm. And by framework, what I mean is a set of skills that have a certain sequence to them. So if you think about the way that you learn math or the way that you learn English, you build up from the bottom in building blocks. Mm -hmm. And the skills that are acquired become increasingly complex. Well, similarly, the ability to have the skills that we want to see in, in kids for work or for school are skills like curiosity, self-direction, tenacity, agency. If you were to ask any employer, what skills do you want to have in the people that you employ, those are the skills that they would name. Yeah. But the thing about those skills is that they don't just emerge de novo, like suddenly you're born and you can do long division. It's just not how it happens. What happens is that there are foundational skills like self-regulation, executive function, growth mindset, these are prerequisite building block skills for those higher order skills that we want all kids to have. And right now, we don't have an education system that intentionally develops those skills. So imagine if you come to school and you don't have even development of those skills. And here's the thing, children exposed to adversity and stress often have uneven development of those skills because the part of the brain in which those skills develop is highly sensitive to the hormone cortisol and the experience of stress. So when children don't build those foundational skills or have help to build them, they also are at greater risk not to develop the higher order skills that we want all kids to have like perseverance, agency, self-direction. So what we're advocating for and what our practice is, is involved with is actually developing integrated tools 
that support the development of those skills in regular classrooms, whether those are public district classrooms or charter classrooms. But our big ambition is that 21st century education incorporate the development of these kinds of skills and competencies as a regular part of public education. Otherwise, I, we we just risk a vicious circle. Is what's going through my mind. What, what you're describing. If you, a kid comes in, may not doesn't have the chance to build those skills. Um, goes through an adverse event. Uh, the cortisol negatively impacts that part of the brain in particular, um, further pushing it down. It's just a vicious circle where not only is a child not having the opportunity because of the framework, because of the design to build those skills, but also isn't understanding or there isn't understanding around her on on how to combat th- the science. It, it just it, it feels like a vicious, uh, the potential for a vicious circle. And the vicious circle also includes the fact that every year that a child is in school, the academic demands on that child increase. So let's say that you enter kindergarten with uneven development of foundational skills, and then you apply greater and greater academic demands to that child. What will happen? They begin to disengage. They feel dumb. They feel like they cannot be a student or can't be successful in school. And, And so when you look at the achievement gap, or you look at who drops out by the eighth grade, or who doesn't master algebra, all of which are indicators of later school failure. These things are directly attributable to children having these kinds of skills and competencies to engage fully in learning. So how does Turnaround get integrated with a school, and once integrated, how do you work with a school? Our organization has been fortunate to have some very wonderful school partners, and with those partners, we function as a kind of R&D organization because we have been, since our founding, wanting to develop practices initially to get underneath the effects of trauma and adversity on learning and on uh, school challenges overall. But more recently, we're engaged in building tools that support the development of these skills and mindsets that I was talking about a little earlier. So we have close partnerships with schools in which we do this kind of applied science work. Once we have tools that have been sufficiently tested and are good enough Um, we think, to work in other settings, we begin to scale them through other systems. So two examples of those systems would be DCPS, which is the public district in Washington, D.C., and another would be KIPP, D.C., which is a charter management organization that has 17 schools in D.C. And even more recently, we're, we're working with other platforms like those But we're beginning to put our knowledge and tools onto technology platforms like Digital Promise or Edutopia, where uh, they are literally available online and something that practitioners can download and, and use. So we're looking to expand more and more in the sense of 
the people who have access to this knowledge of science and adversity and human development, um, and to continuously test and refine um, the work that we do in a core group of partner schools. Pam, I want to also ask you about something you said earlier, the malleability of the brain. Is that something that stands as a challenge for children and for learning, or is that also potentially an opportunity? I think understanding the brain's capacity for malleability is an enormous opportunity, and here's what I mean by that. We are mammals, and as mammals, our brains are not fully formed at birth. In fact, our cortex, which is our thinking, feeling, and learning brain, actually is formed largely after we're born. So our brains actually grow in response to the relationships and experiences of our lives. And neural tissue is the most susceptible to change of any tissue in the human body. So the good news in that is that if we pay attention to the relationships, the experiences of children's lives, we can shape their development. Malleability is also a reason that children are vulnerable to stress. But I think the optimism in developmental science derives directly from the malleability of the human brain. And Pam, just to close out, um, I find myself thinking about your own journey and, and your path. Do you, do you feel like you've had multiple careers? Do you feel like it's been one connected path and you never would have gotten to where you are now and, and been thinking about the things you think about now, if not but for the training you had in, in science and the training and, and practice um, as a child psychiatrist? It, 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 when, when you think about your own journey, um, how, how do you trace it? I think it is one path, but I can't tell you that I foresaw all the all the parts of it in advance. Hmm. What I can tell you is that I went to medical school in order to work with children who had experienced trauma. And this process of working with them and seeing children surmount unbelievable things um, is a source of endless faith and passion that this is possible for kids. So that's unshakable. And then coming into schools uh, post 9-11, and realizing that we had an education system that actually wasn't designed based on knowledge that I had learned in medical school in the past decade or two, and that that knowledge wasn't part of education, really opened up this giant aspiration, which is to be part of um, a set of contributions that people are making to think of 21st century education as something that will be based on a knowledge of the developing brain and how children can reach their fullest potential. So I do see it as one arc, um, but I didn't foresee it. <laughs> If, if yeah. you understand what I, I mean. I, I understand. And, and, you know, like the rest of us, if, if only you could have foreseen the <laughs> right. valleys, you know, the, 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 the wonderful yeah. parts, those are fine coming as surprises. I'm sure that, like anyone else, you had challenges and opportunities. Pam, thank you. Thank you for your time, and, and thank you for the work that you do for and with the kids. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. 